Well, I want to begin looking at the immune system for just a moment. Now, I'm not a doctor and have not had any training in the medical field, but I'm probably as fascinated with the immune system as you are. And over the last couple of days as I've been doing some research on it, was amazed once again at the creative wisdom of God expressed in something like the human immune system. Each one of us has two components to our immune system. There is what we call an innate immune system. That's the immune system that we're born with. And then there's something called the adaptive immune system, and, and that's the one that we acquire over the duration of our lives. Now, crucial to the immune system uh, are what we call the white blood cells. These white blood cells make up only 1% of a person's blood. In one drop of blood, you'll find between 7,000 and 25,000 of these white blood cells. Now, this I found most astonishing that in a day, our bone marrow produces about 100 billion white cells. That works out to be about 3.8 million per second. So the amount of time that it takes to blink and blink again, you've produced millions of white blood cells. There are five types of these white blood cells, and each type has its own particular role in defending the body against toxins. There are white blood cells that are responsible for sounding the alarm. They identify the threat and then call the other kinds of white blood cells to respond. Some white blood cells have the responsibility of releasing chemicals to ensure that the immune response is, is controlled and does not either overdo it or underdo it. Other white blood cells are responsible for attacking and destroying these invading toxins, the, the viruses, the bacteria, the fungi, whereas other white blood cells have the responsibility of consuming the leftover pieces. And yet there are still other white blood cells that have the responsibility of creating the memory bank the antibodies by which to remember in the future that particular pathogen so that when that pathogen next enters the body, it will be immediately recognized and destroyed before it can reproduce. These white blood cells swiftly move through the body and when necessary, they use these little feelers to attach to that which they need to attach to either the blood vessels or the thing that they are attacking. And in a healthy individual, white blood cells are able very easily to distinguish between you and the enemy that's in you. These white blood cells are able to determine what cells are in your blood that are necessary and and are important and necessary to the function of, of your life, and they will not attack those, but they will attack those which are harmful. And what's also interesting is the memory that this 
immune system develops, this adaptive immune system, that these cells produce such a memory of every single pathogen that enters the body that each one of us here has a unique memory bank of interaction with these pathogens. Each one of us have been exposed at different times to, to different things. And our immune system, our adaptive immune system, is the same thing really as our fingerprint. It is as unique to each individual as the pathogens that we have faced in life. Indeed, God has created a wonderful immune system within us. But I'm not here to talk about the immune system tonight. I've pretty much maxed out the amount of knowledge that I can share on this with any degree of confidence. But I do use this as an illustration because what a healthy adaptive immune system is to the body, spiritual discernment is to the mind. Spiritual discernment really is our ideological immune system. You see, we do not live in an innocent and sterile world. We certainly don't when it comes to the the physical dimension, all the germs, the bacteria, the fungi, the toxins, the viruses that are out there. But we also do not live in a sterile world, in an innocent world, as it relates to ideas, to thoughts. Our life outside the Garden of Eden, outside that realm of innocence, is a life that is marked by corruption and all kinds of ideological contagions on all levels. And this influence, this danger from error and from evil is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. At a very fundamental level, these pathogens are created by our own self. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 describes the unbeliever this way, saying, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. That's the unbeliever in his unregenerate state. But even for the believer who has received a a new life, a new heart, he still deals with the the remaining sinful flesh, the unredeemed flesh. Galatians 5.17 says the flesh sets itself against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things you please. Even our unredeemed flesh is producing these ideological pathogens. We also have the source of these dangerous threats in the ideological realm from the demonic realm itself. John 8 verse 44 describes Satan, Jesus in that text describes Satan as the father of lies. It originates with him. But it doesn't stay there. If we look, for example, at Ephesians 6 verse 12, we read that our struggle in this life is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is really not against viruses at the physical level. Our real struggle, the one that matters for eternity, is the struggle that is against the rulers and the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. 
against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. But this influence of evil, this source of all kinds of ideological pathogens, also uh, is found in our own culture. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes to the Colossians, warning them about this, and says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. We read that in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 15, that in the same way that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, his servants do the same thing. Human messengers of error and evil. We read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, that we are to test the spirits because not all spirits are of God. And we are to reject those who do not preach Jesus Christ as revealed by the apostolic message. And never before has the influence of this error and evil through the medium of words been as intense as in our generation. Just think of, 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 of this world, this, the, the, the age today compared to 100 years ago. 100 years ago, if you were to be influenced by words, you'd have to go seek them out. But today, we carry around these devices that are constantly sending messages to us, notifications. The world is always at a click away. Never before has this ideological threat been so intense and so close And certainly the Apostle Paul predicted this as he looked ahead to the future and he said this, the time will come, speaking of people here on earth, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. Certainly today we, we see that happening on a massive scale. It's called deconstruction. And it's happening all around and undoubtedly many of us could point to people that we know who are turning aside from the truth to myths. And that's all unfolding for us on social media and blogs on the internet, everywhere for everyone to see. Tim Chowley's in a book called The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment, a book that I highly recommend. He writes this, we live in a world that is in direct opposition to Christianity. Just as germs are constantly waging war on our bodies, false doctrine is constantly raging against our faith. God has provided us with discernment to enable us to withstand these attacks. So now let's look into that a little bit deeper. What is discernment? And and before we define that term, discernment, I do want to look at its biblical basis. Let me first look to the scriptures to see where discernment is exhorted, and then from that we will will define the term and come up with a, a good, solid 
working definition. Let's look at then at the, the biblical basis for discernment. Where do we get it from? Well, there are a host of Hebrew Old Testament terms and Greek New Testament terms that communicate the idea of discernment. But I want to look this evening at two New Testament terms. The first one is the Greek term dokimadzo. Dokimadzo. Now this term is, is used in various senses. It is used, for example, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, to refer to approving. And so you remember from that text when we looked at that very crucial text related to the renewal of the mind, that Paul ends that exhortation there when he commands us to be transformed by the renewing of the mind, and he ends that with the purpose clause, so that we may be able to prove what the will of God is. There, the idea of proving is not in the sense of testing, but in the sense of approving, of seeing the value, of seeing the worth of the will of God. But this verb, dakimadzo, as we're going to look at it this evening, is also used in a different sense to describe the, the, the act of making a critical examination of something in order to determine whether it's genuine or not. So in this sense, the verb doesn't focus on the idea of approval, but on the idea of testing, of critical analysis to determine whether a thing, an idea in this case, is true or not, whether an act is moral or not. That's the idea behind this use of the verb. Now, the key text that I will point you to this evening on this is, is found at the close of the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And he gives this closing instruction as he wraps up his exhortations to this very young church. He says this beginning in verse 19 of chapter 5. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain to every form of evil. Here the verb is, is translated as examine. But examine. Here's the exhortation. He tells this young Thessalonian congregation made up of converts who are probably at most six months old in the faith. Those who had turned away from idols, their pagan backgrounds, to serve the living and true God and to wait for Jesus, he tells them to examine everything carefully. Dakimadzo, make a critical assessment to see whether it is genuine or not. And, and that which is to be examined is everything. He, he's, he's calling upon them to have an attitude of examination, of discernment, related to everything that comes across their path. Another text that's important here and communicates the same idea is found in 1 John 4, verse 1. Here the apostle John, writing to believers in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, he gives them this exhortation. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
Here the verb, dakimazo, is translated as test. And that which is to be tested is the spirits. And, and that is not a reference to going around trying to discern the names of demons and angels and things like that. The word spirit here is, is used to describe ideas, ideologies. Test the ideologies, the ideas, the assertions, the proposals, the propositions. Test them to see whether they are from God. Notice that the Apostle John, just like the Apostle Paul, puts this responsibility squarely in the hands of converts. They both assume that believers will have the mechanism, they'll have the ability to do this testing. He doesn't just say, blindly listen to so-and-so. He says, you yourselves test and examine. Another term that's used, the second one that I want to look at this evening, is the verb diacrino. Diacrino. And really it means to judge through, to judge between. It, it has the idea of to differentiate by separation. The emphasis of this verb is, is the idea of recognizing difference. It's also expressed in the noun form, the related cognate form of that, diacrisis, which means or which refers to the ability to distinguish and evaluate. Now notice a very important concept here with this term. It's the idea of separation, of drawing a dividing line, of categorization, of making a distinction. As we're going to see, that is crucial to the discipline of discernment. A text that has this word used in it is, is found in Hebrews chapter 5. We've looked at this text already in one of our previous sessions as, as we talked about the need for men to, it, to grow in the faith and to be teachers, be able to communicate truth. But at the, at the end of this text, in verse 14, we see this verb used again. Here the writer of Hebrews writes as follows. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Notice how the writer of Hebrews describes Christian maturity. It is, it is defined by this practice of, of discernment, this idea of having senses or abilities trained so as to distinguish to draw the line between, to categorize, to differentiate good and evil. So when we, we pull these terms together, and, and we could look at other examples of this. We don't have time this evening. You can do a word search on them. But if we would take all of their uses together, we'd come down to some basic summary ideas of this biblical basis for discernment. First of all, Discernment is something that must be developed or learned. 
It must be developed or learned. It's part of that, that acquired immune system. It's not something that you just intuitively use. It must be developed. Your senses must be taught. You must be trained. Secondly, this act of discernment is, is no small, easy thing. It is something that is going to take energy. It's going to take attention. It's, it's going to require effort and care. It's going to require investigation and analysis. In other words, it is going to require hard work. That, by the way, is why many professing Christians simply don't care about it requires too much, but we are called upon to invest this effort. Thirdly, this discernment necessitates the making of distinctions. It necessitates drawing lines in the the sand. It it requires making categories. It, It requires calling a spade a spade. That's what discernment is. All Christians are called upon to examine everything. Remember those exhortations. They were not just given to the leaders in the church, to the elders, to the shepherds, not even to the deacons only. These exhortations were given to all who are in Christ. Moreover, as the text of Hebrews taught, the the lack of discernment shows immaturity. To be unable to distinguish between good and evil is a mark of childishness in the faith. To to be gullible about these things, to not know the difference, is is a a sure sign of of immaturity. And in fact, we can even look at the use of the term in Romans chapter 1 verse 28, which describes the state of unbelievers as those who did not discern God. They did not recognize him. So at worst, a lack of discernment shows utter contempt at God. On the other hand, growth in discernment, growth in this ability to distinguish, is a clear sign of growth in Christ-likeness. That we are to understand the process of sanctification as a process of ever-growing in that immune system, ever-expanding and improving that acquired immune system, that adaptive immune system that is able to, to identify pathogens, ideological pathogens, more quickly and dispose of them more efficiently, to get rid of them, to expunge them from life, from thinking. That is a mark of Christ-likeness. Now, with that said, let's put together a summary definition of what discernment is. Essentially, at a very simple level, I would describe discernment this way. Discernment is thinking biblically. Discernment is just thinking biblically. It is thinking the way that God has created you to think. In the same way that God has given you an immune system to to work in a certain way, he's given you a mind, and and, and through the process of regeneration, he has redeemed that mind, and, and you are to use it to his glory by thinking the right way. Discernment is simply thinking biblically. It is the discipline of comparing 
all ideas, all thoughts, all propositions with God's standard. God is the standard of truth. He's the standard of beauty. He is the standard of morality. So discernment is that ability to look at all ideas, thoughts, propositions, assertions, and and to, to compare, to consider how do these things measure up to that inerrant standard, to that infallible standard. Moreover, discernment recognizes then, after comparing, recognizes what deviates and, and, and what must be what must be rejected and, and what conforms and, and what must be embraced. Coming back to Tim Challey's book, The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment, which again, I, I highly recommend, he gives this definition of discernment and I think it is most helpful. If there's one definition that you can remember, it's, it's this one. He says this, quote, discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error, right from wrong, end quote. Let me say that again. It's, it's such a good definition. He says, quote, discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. Now, let's pull that apart in, a, in, its, in its different components. First of all, it is a skill. As I've mentioned already, this skill of discernment is not innate. It's not an innate immune system. It's adaptive. It must be acquired. And it must be developed. It's like a muscle. You don't use it, and you lose it. You, don't, you won't get it. The, 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 the skill of discernment requires development. Secondly, that skill of discernment involves understanding. It is the skill of understanding. And that term is important because so often, especially in our culture, discernment is relegated to the realm of feelings. So when people will ask, well, what do you, what do you think about this? And the response is often, I feel so, so you'll have an idea, you'll have a, a trend, a fad, a movement, and you'll ask somebody, what do you think? And the response will be, well, my gut tells me. Now, they do say that in the physical immune system, your gut means a whole lot. In fact, there's more bacteria related to your immune system, in your, weighing more in your gut than your brain weighs, and I like that idea, you know, that means we can, you know, protect that, that gut. But in the spiritual sense, in the spiritual sense, discernment is not about the gut. The, the immune system of the mind is not related to emotions or passions. It's related to truth. It's related to the thinking, to the function of the mind. But it is also a skill of understanding and applying Discernment is particularly important in the practical aspects of life. It doesn't really have much to do with, with speculation, with theories. 
Discernment is all about the concrete realities of life. The ideas you want to believe or don't want to believe. The actions you want to take. The decisions you want to make. The proposals you have given to you. The invitations. Discernment is all about those, those practical things. And so discernment is the skill of understanding and applying. Now this next component is very important. It is the skill of understanding and applying God's word. Here is the standard. Discernment operates on the basis of the scriptures, what has been learned from God's word. It looks at the word of God, the scriptures, the Bible, as that revealed standard by which God has, has given to us the framework by which to make decisions. In that word, he has given us the instruction by which to assess and evaluate and to think critically of, of this world and the ideas in it. Moreover, discernment is about separating. With the purpose of separating, it recognizes, as I've said already, the need to draw lines. Again, that's, that's where a lot of people get uncomfortable, especially in our age. No one wants to draw lines anymore. In fact, you ask most people, and all of life is this continuum of shades. If you say black and white today, if you say there's right and wrong, there's good and evil, you will be laughed at. You, you will be scoffed at. For most, it's just this continuum of shades. But discernment is the, the, the recognition of the need to draw lines, to need to establish categories. Moreover, the area in which those lines are drawn are in issues related to truth and error. Of saying, this is true and this is error. This is true and this is less true. This is true and this is false. Also relates to morality. Of judging between right and wrong, saying that this act, this behavior, this practice is right and this one is less right. This one is wrong. This one is not. The, the right plan of action. Discernment requires the making of those distinctions. And this is not easy, admittedly, in our world. And we must recognize the fact that because of the fall, there are these very difficult moments when these lines have to be drawn. And, and we're, often, we're often at the end of ourselves in knowing where to draw the line. That is a result of the fall. And it's a result of the fact that, as I've said already, Satan does not just present error and immorality in the starkness of its ugliness. He, he does so by incorporating elements of truth so as to disguise its ugliness. And so, as Charles Spurgeon said, discernment is not simply a matter of telling the difference between right and wrong. Rather, it is the difference between right and almost right. Think of that. That's really where we need discernment. It is, it is telling the difference between right and almost right. And let me tell you, few people today are courageous enough to do that. You could look at it this way. If this is truth, or, or if this is righteousness, think of it this way. 
This circle on the screen represents truth or a righteous act. This then represents, this other circle represents all of the variations and deviations from that truth, from that righteous act. And what discernment does, what, how it is programmed, what it is programmed to do is to, to recognize that which is truth and to ignore and reject that which falls short. And it's not just rejecting that which is on the far end of the scale of darkness, but also those variations where Satan as an angel of light has sought to promote an idea or a behavior which looks so good and looks so close and has all these terms that sound so good, but being able to say no, it must be rejected because it is not the whole truth. That is what discernment is. You could look at it this way as well. When we discern, what we must do is take every thought, every proposal, every assertion, every idea, every fad, and, and we must distinguish. If it is true, then we accept it. Then we incorporate it into our way of living, our system of beliefs, our daily practice, and we remember it. This is right. This is what we must do. This is where my conscience is bound. It is the truth. But if it is wrong, if it is false, we must reject it. We must expunge that ideology from us and remember why. That's discernment. Like those white blood cells, we must build the antibodies so that the next time that ideology presents itself, we don't allow it any time to reproduce in our system, but we immediately attack it, destroy it, and expunge it. We must remember. Now, how do we put this into practice? In light of this, uh, this teaching on discernment, in light of what discernment is, I want to spend time now looking at the practical aspects of, of developing discernment in our lives, where, how do we do this? Where do we go from here? And let me give you half a dozen important steps in the stage of developing this discipline of discernment. Number one, we must begin with prayer. We must begin with prayer. We, we do not have, as I've said already, innate discernment. We are inherently defenseless. If left to our own abilities, if, if left to our own devices, if left to our own faculties, we don't have the ability to recognize the differences, to make the distinctions, and to properly embrace that which is good and reject that which is evil. We need help from outside of us, and prayer is the recognition of that. We won't look at the whole text, but you can go back and look at Solomon's great prayer, that high point in Solomon's life when the Lord appeared to Solomon at night at Gibeon and said, Solomon, what do you want? What do you want? Ask what you wish and I'll give it to you. 
and, and Solomon reflects upon the Davidic covenant, the promise made to his father, and then issues these words in his petition. He says, so give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. He prayed for this, and the next verse immediately states, and this was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this. Now certainly we recognize that Solomon was a a unique man in a unique position that none of us will will ever stand within. But the the same principle, the truth, is, is there that we don't have this discernment. We live lives that require daily, hourly uh, decisions and, and distinctions to be made, and our best response is to do exactly what Solomon did and to pray, to ask the Lord for this discernment. This is where it begins. In Psalm 119, verse 66, here the writer of that great psalm says this, teach me, he's addressing Yahweh, and he says, teach me discernment and knowledge for I believe in your commandments. But look at Proverbs chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. We looked at this the last time that, that we met, where, where Solomon says to his son, If you cry out for discernment, if you cry out for discernment, if you recognize your, your inability and your need, your deficit, if you cry out and you cry out to the Lord, he will grant it. In Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul records his prayer to this young church in in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, and and notice the content of Paul's prayer, and ask yourself the question, well, maybe I've never prayed for discernment for myself, but have I prayed for discernment for anyone else? Notice Paul's practice. He says, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And implicit in that prayer is also the the purpose so that they would be able to abstain from and reject that which is not excellent. That's how Paul prayed for the, the, the Philippians. You see, this prayer acknowledges our dependency. It, it acknowledges our lack And this is inherently pleasing to God. We look to him as the source. We don't look to the philosophers of this age. We we don't look to the scribes. We don't look to the cultural influencers. That if we want to make the right decisions and know what is excellent, we look to the Lord. And we don't just pray this request for ourselves. But this is a pattern that, that Paul gives that this is how we are to pray for one another. That at the top of our prayer requests, as we think of these great exercises of love for one another through intercessory prayer, we must be praying for one another, Lord, give my brother discernment. Give him discernment so that he would approve the things that are indeed excellent. Repeat that prayer sincerely for those in your life. Number two, Study the standard. Study the standard. This is well known in in the world of counterfeit money. 
that you don't study the counterfeits. For there can be as many counterfeits as there are attempts to, to, to reduplicate the authentic. But as they'll always say, give your attention to the real thing. The ability to spot a counterfeit, a fake, is all tied up with knowing what are the characteristics of the authentic. And what is the authentic standard for the Christian? Well, it's God's truth as he has spoken in his word. John 17 verse 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That verbal revelation, that's where our standard is located. Not in the traditions of men, as good as they may be, not in your experiences, not in your feelings, not in the, the fads of this world. The standard is in that immutable, unchanging word of God. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2-3 to three states it this way, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him, of Jesus, who called us by his own glory and excellence. Notice he puts the, the emphasis on the sufficiency of this knowledge. And, and where do we find the knowledge of Jesus Christ? It is found, recorded for us by his designated apostles and writers. Those New Testament prophets who carried on this teaching of Jesus Christ. That now is our standard. We don't need anything else. We certainly don't need dreams we don't need new and, and, and exciting, fresh personal revelation. We have everything now in this apostolic teaching that we need today, 2,000 years later, for making distinctions. Martin Luther said this, I have covenanted with my Lord that he should not send me visions or dreams or even angels. I am content with the gift of the scriptures which teaches and supplies all that is necessary both for this life and that which is to come. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16-17 points to this standard when it says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Now notice what it's profitable for and this certainly relates to discernment. It's profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, he may be sufficient, equipped for every good work. So you must understand it this way. It's not that we claim that the Bible is an encyclopedia of all the, the ideas that will ever be stated with, with the definition of whether they're true or false. The, the Bible is not an encyclopedia. The Bible does not even describe all of the possible moral potentialities that we will face. However, the Bible gives us that sure foundation, that sure framework, that sufficient, inerrant, clear, and authoritative framework by which we can approach every situation in this life and determine, is this truth 
or error? Is this good or is this bad? Is this true or false, right or wrong? The scriptures provide the framework. And those scriptures, therefore, must be rightly approached and and rightly studied. This is not just about finding proof texts and taking words out of context. To study the scripture, just like a banker would study a, a banknote, requires that careful, diligent study where everything is taken in its proper context and understood for its function on that banknote, so too must we approach the Scriptures. And may I say this even, what is particularly important is that you study the Scriptures not just to know what Scripture says, but you study the Scriptures to know the God who said them. You study the Scriptures to know God. You see, God is holy. And that means he is holy other. He is distinct from everything else. He is distinct from every corruption. Every possible moral, intellectual, existential corruption. God is distinct from that. So to know him, this holy God will be the key to making distinctions in this life. To know who God is in that otherliness, in his transcendence, in his righteousness, in his truthfulness, knowing God that way will be the key for us to exercise discernment in the proper level. And that means we all, we all must be students of the perfections of God. And may I say this as an addendum as well to this particular point, beware of trying to learn the counterfeit. Some will say, okay, I've got this down. I know I need to draw lines. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to study all the errors that are out there. And I'm going to devote my life to that. But understand this, in the same way that too much exposure of your body to a toxin will eventually overwhelm the immune system, the same thing will happen to you ideologically. Even with the best intents to devote yourself to the study of error eventually will overwhelm you. That is not the place to go. Yes, we must be aware. Yes, we must be able to refute. We must must have enough knowledge of these fads and these movements in order to make distinctions. But we do not set our lives, we do not devote our lives to the study of of all of those false characteristics. We devote our lives to the study of the truth, the true standard. Paul says in Romans 16, verse 19, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Number three, and this is crucial, examine the idea. As we already looked at in Hebrews chapter 5, 11 to 14, it is the epitome of immaturity, of naivete, to accept an idea or a proposition without examination. Now, the only qualification to that statement would be this. The only time when we accept always, and we must always accept at face value and without judgment, it is the propositions of Scripture. That is the only thing we ever approach with a completely open attitude and say, there is nothing for me to judge. It is only for me to submit 
the only source of ideas to which we submit in that way is, is the scriptures. But with everything else, we must recognize our responsibility to examine. And Christians must exercise this, this, this discipline of critical thinking, this analytical mindset that does not simply accept ideas, propositions, assertions at, at face value. But instead, we must approach ideas, and based on their severity and their association with spiritual things, we must examine roots, we must examine we must examine consistency. We must examine consequences of all of these ideas. And it's particularly important today. Take all the fads that are out there. You name it. Whatever is popular in the world today. Whether it's critical theory, intersectionality, whether it's transgenderism, whatever it is. The Christian's response to all of these things, no matter who puts it forward and in what flowery language we are to examine roots, we are to examine consistency, we are to examine consequences. And what we see today in the deconstruction of so many people who are professing believers is the utter failure to do just that, to examine critically. Now I want to give you a series of questions they're in your notes, and, and also there's a form of this in, in Tim Challey's chapter, chapter 10 of his book, and you can look there for an excellent description. I've, I've taken from that and adapted it a little bit for tonight. I want to give you a series of questions that will help you in critical thinking. Number one, understand it correctly. The question is this, what does it actually say? When you have an idea, when, the, when, when something is proposed to you, when something enters your mind, you have to understand it correctly. So ask the question, what does it actually say? Too, too, much, is, too much negative things are, are done by false caricatures. Discernment isn't false caricatures. Discernment is, is understanding correctly what is being said. The essence of the argument. The essence of the proposal. Number two, draw the connection. Ask yourself this, what doctrine is at stake, if any? There are things in this life, there are things in this world that don't have any connection to doctrine. In fact, they're just matters of personal opinion, personal preference. Someone likes seafood, someone likes steak. What do I have tonight for dinner? What kind of discernment is needed there, right? That, what's the connection to, to doctrine on that matter? Nothing. But we must ask. Is this idea connected in any way to my understanding of God, my purpose in life, the future, the gospel message? What doctrine is at stake? Look to find the connection. The closer the connection with the things that the Bible deals with, the more you need to spend time on it. The, the, the farther away that is, without any connection to, to spiritual things and to the things of God, the more freedom you have in dealing with it. Number three, consider the source. Where does it come from? Who proposed the idea? Who made the assertion? Who is giving you the command? Who says you must believe this? Very important question. Who, who made it? 
Who said it? Where does it come from? Because there's a basic reality. Salt water springs do not produce fresh water. And so if, a, if an idea comes from a wicked source, you know you can dismiss it pretty easily. If, if, if an assertion to believe something or a command to do something comes from a, a source that is evil, you can know that it will be corrupt. On the other hand, if that source is trustworthy, if it has a, a, a reputation, an established reputation of, of godliness, then you'll treat it much differently. Consider the source. Number four, anticipate the outcome. Not only do you look at the roots, where it comes from, but also anticipate the outcome. Look for the fruits. And the fruits may not be tangible at that moment, but an essential part of critical thinking is to look ahead and to see where will the dominoes fall? Where will this lead? That's crucial to critical thinking. It's crucial to discernment. Look ahead and see where is this going? Again, one of the common mistakes in, in, among so many is they embrace ideas without ever recognizing that ideas always have consequences. Think of that. It's one of the things with kids. It's, it's like, you, you know, they do something and you, you just say, what were you thinking? I don't know. I never used to, I, I never thought this would happen. Well, it's as clear as, as day it would happen that way. What's the characteristic of immaturity, not to anticipate the outcome. Number five, identify the authority. Any idea, any proposition, any assertion, any command will appeal to some authority. Something will be used to justify it. You must believe this because. You must do this because. So part of critical thinking is to say, okay, what is the authority? What kind of authority is it? It is, a, is, is it a godly authority? Is it a wholesome authority? Is it a God-ordained authority? Or is it an authority that has been usurped by wicked men? Number six, then search the scriptures. Having gone through those questions, then you say, okay, with this knowledge, with these observations, now I go to the scriptures, which I have been studying, and I, I look to see if and how God's word addresses it. And like I said before, this is not just about doing a word search to find whether that particular word is found in the scriptures. It's about understanding scripture to such an extent that you recognize the framework. You, you know the character of God. And so in those moral issues that are not explicitly addressed by the scriptures, when you take them to the scriptures, you, you, you take them to the character of God, you take them to the character of the gospel, the character of the future, the character of God's promises, and you say, this either does match or it doesn't. And then number seven, get good counsel. Get good counsel. What do other godly men say about this issue? What are other godly men who are known for their love for the scriptures? How do they, how do they resolve this? Do they believe this? Do they affirm this trend, this fad? Are they saying it's good? And what are the reasons that they do it? Seek good counsel. Then after you've done all those, number four, make the distinction. Draw the line. Discernment is about drawing lines in, in these issues. If Christ is Lord over all, and he is, 
then Christians cannot call evil what he calls good, cannot call good what he calls evil, cannot call truth what he calls error, cannot call error what he calls truth, cannot call beautiful what he calls ugly, and call ugly what he calls beautiful. We can't sit on the fence. We can't just be neutral. In this world that is outside of Eden, there is no innocence. There is no neutrality. This isn't a sterile environment. We are called upon to make distinctions. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 to 21 states this clearly. After examining everything, we are to hold fast to that which is good, and we are to abstain from every form of evil. That which conforms and upholds the standards, we embrace, we incorporate, and we remember why. And that which does not, that which diverges, we reject, we expunge, and we remember why. Sinclair Ferguson, in a little article entitled, What is Discernment?, said this, True discernment means not only distinguishing the right from the wrong, it means distinguishing the primary from the secondary, the essential from the indifferent, the permanent from the transient. And yes, it means distinguishing between the good, the better, and even the better and the best. Number five, prepare for discord. Those who exist... As I've shown on the screen here, those who exist in that shaded area will not be happy when you draw lines. And prepare to hear Matthew chapter 7 quoted in your face many times. Do not judge. Do not judge. But the scriptures have specifically called us to judge. Now in a different sense than what Matthew or Jesus deals with there in the Sermon on the Mount. As I said, 1 Thessalonians 5 says, examine everything, cling to what is good, abstain from the evil. It's as clear as can be. And Jesus even says later in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 10, he says, do not think that I came to bring peace on, on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. In other words, Jesus is, is, is foretelling here that when it comes to the gospel and sacrifices for Christ, that you will create enemies. Drawing the lines will make you unpopular. Thomas Manton, a Puritan living in the 1600s, helps us put this in perspective when he says this, the way to get peace and safety in evil times is not to comply with enemies, but to comply with God. All our danger lies in his anger, not in their wrath and rage. For God can bridle them or let them loose upon us as he sees good. Number six, finally, strive for humility. It's a very important point that must be added in any discussion on discernment. The sinful flesh can easily, can easily corrupt even this exercise and turn it into a foothold for pride, for, for argumentativeness and quarrelsomeness, and to, to condescension. 
In fact, so-called, we have many of them today, so-called discernment bloggers can often be some of the most difficult, unwholesome people to deal with. Arrogant, insolent, absolutely no grace, no mercy, no patience, no redemptive qualities whatsoever. They're suspicious and, and impatient, and, and such discerners are usually unteachable and often uncountable to anyone. They're not, parts of, they're not members of local churches underneath godly elders and open to counsel. They're a dime a dozen. Remember that this, this exercise, this discipline, is is a fertile soil for Satan to do his mischievous work and create a whole new level of pride in you. Therefore, fundamental to this activity, to the development of this discipline, is the cultivation of humility. Even in Paul's qualifications for eldership, he says to the to, to, the church, to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus, listen, candidates for this office of overseer must not be pugnacious, but they must be gentle. In 2 Timothy, in the next letter that he writes to Timothy, he says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If, perchance, God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. This is what real discernment ministry looks like. It, it's, it's marked by a kindness. It's, it's marked by this ability to communicate persuasively. It's marked by patience. It's, it's marked by gentleness. When, when these things are present, then you know that the spiritual discipline of discernment is in full flower. And to illustrate this with one more quote, let me quote from Tim Challies, who hits this point home with these words. He says this, quote, a person who wishes to be discerning must be a person of humility. Discernment cannot flourish where there is a haughty or arrogant attitude, end quote. Let's pray that the Lord would take all of this and press it deeply within our lives for his glory's sake and for the good of his church. Father, we are thankful once again for your word and the clarity which it brings to our lives. And like the Philippians, we need discernment to be able to approve that which is excellent. Like Solomon, we, we need discernment in, in order to be able to judge between that which is right and wrong. Like the writer of the psalm, we ask that you would teach us discernment and understanding because we believe in your commandments. Father, we recognize our own propensity to that which is deviant, Deviant in morality and, and deviant in, in ideas, in intellect. And so we pray for this strong immune system. Especially in this day where we're bombarded 
with so much. Lord, grant us a discerning mind that we may approve that which is excellent. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.